Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading today comes from Exodus uh, chapter 20. As Courtney mentioned earlier, we're going to read verse 1 through 3. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring a Bible today and you want to slip up, I certainly wouldn't mind. We have uh, Bibles available kind of in the entryway. Uh, if you don't feel like doing that this week, you know, feel free any week you come, if you get your Bible, to grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible uh, and you'd like one, just grab one on your way out as, as our gift to you. Uh, but Exodus 20, verse uh, 1 through 3, uh, we believe that uh, the prophet Moses is, is writing these things, is giving these things um, to us, but he's giving them to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, these words come to us today with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were speaking. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Last year, uh, I read... Uh, this book that was a very famous book. A lot of guys read it, 12 Rules for Life uh, by Jordan Peterson. It was incredibly successful. A lot of people kind of bought into um, this book and, and appreciated some of the wisdom that Peterson was sharing. Peterson's not a believer. He's writing from a secular perspective. Um, but, but he was surprised. I was surprised with just some of the, the feedback or the popularity of the book. And he was even surprised. Uh, one place he said, um, um, I paid attention to the results um, why people's, this, this book or these rules had such disproportionate success. He said, perhaps I struck the right balance between familiar and unfamiliar while formulating the rules. Perhaps people were just drawn to the structure that such rules apply. But then I like what he said at the end. He said, perhaps people just like lists. And I think people do like lists. They're kind of drawn to lists. Uh, it, there is some, there's a bit of structure, or ability to, to frame things for us that we find in different lists. And obviously this list that he, these 12 things that he laid out was impactful for our culture. But the list that we're gonna be looking at for the next several weeks, um, really more than any other list of maxims, more than any other list of commandments or words or rules has, has totally changed culture. Obviously uh, this list, the 10 commandments had an amazing effect or a foundational effect on Hebrew culture but it's really been the foundation for all of Western culture, really all of Western civilization, all of Western thought uh, is so much built on uh, these ancient maxims or ancient commandments. Kevin DeYoung in the book that we're studying in our life group says, it's no exaggeration to say that these 10 words handed down at Mount Sinai have been the most influential law code ever given. And another place in the book, he's quoting a guy named Tom Holland, who's a, a classic scholar. He's a classics historian. He studied a lot about the Romans and the, the Greeks. And obviously we, we received a lot of kind of our understanding of the world and life uh, through Roman, through Greek culture. Uh, but he said, as I grew in my understanding of the Roman world and of the, the Greco-Roman world, I understood that really we are so much more deeply framed in the West by Christianity. He said, I realized how we really don't behave and don't value and don't see life and don't see one another from a Roman or Greco-Roman perspective, but we do see these things through a Christian perspective. The, our values in the Western world have been framed, like it or not, 
by Christianity and in large part by Christian law. You know, this is something I think that, that Western secular people fail to understand or struggle to understand. Uh, one of the things I always tell parents, this may be good news or bad news, but I say, your kids will be most disrespectful to you, right? So if your kids are disrespecting you parents, know that they're not disrespecting other people as bad out there, right? Right? They may be disrespectful to other people, but usually kids to their own parents are say the cruelest things or the meanest things or the shortest things. They have enough sense to not be so disrespectful to the other folks out there. Kids are usually most disrespectful to their own parents. And Western secularism is the rebellious child of Western Christianity. So you need to understand that. The, the value system, the framework that is Western secularism is framed from, is built on biblical morality, built, uh, biblical maxims. So for example, our understanding in the West of human value, well, that is a Christian idea. Uh, it's that kind of Christian idea that gives us the, the moral framework for something like the civil rights movement. You know, our, our understanding of the equality of humanity, uh, the value of women. This is a Christian idea that pushes back against most of the world, which is more misogynistic, or most historical thought, which is more misogynistic. The order and morality that, that we begin our worldview from in the West now, in the secular West now, was framed in scripture, was framed through biblical maxims. And it's that same rebellious child, it's that same now Western secular rebellious child that calls the Bible absurd that looks at its Christian parents, if you will, and says, you don't know what you're talking about. It, it fails to understand that, it, that, that that Western Christianity, the framework of Western Christianity is actually the ones that gave it the framework from which it's coming up with these ideas. And you need to look no further than like The Simpsons or South Park to understand how rebellious Western secularism really is toward Christianity. Now, why am I saying all this? There was a time when in the West, we understood that this framework was good. Christian or not, Jewish or not, we understood that this, that this framework, that this law was wise and was right, that, that our understanding of morality, that our understanding of how we were going to frame our whole lives, it had to be built on some greater authority. So for example, I mean, have you ever read the Declaration of Independence, right? This, we're declaring these rights, these rights that we all believe in, right? Life liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But what do the framers say? They say these have been endowed by our creator, right? So they're saying we have these rights because they're grounded in something that's bigger than just us making a declaration of rights. No, God has given us these rights. Actually, the end of the Declaration of Independence says that we are making this declaration with firm reliance on the providence of God. You see my point here, there was an understanding that, that moral framework, that, that rights, that, that a moral understanding, even a framework for life had to be grounded in something longer lasting, had to be grounded in something deeper. And y'all been in Washington, D.C., if you go by the Supreme Court building, I mean, the Supreme Court, right? We, we talk a lot about this. We want, you know, we, we care about who is sitting as a justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, so much, in so many ways, frames morality in America. Supreme Court decisions have uh, an easy, you can draw an easy line between Supreme Court decisions and moral thought, moral framework in American culture. 
But even the Supreme Court, you know, you know what is pictured in the pediment above the columns on the eastern face of the Supreme Court? It's Moses holding the Ten Commandments, right? So at least when that building was built, there was an understanding that these laws, this moral code, this structure that's going to be declared here was actually framed with something that lasts, that's so much bigger, that's so much deeper, that's so much grander than even America. And in some senses, I, I think that we've, we've lost this idea that all morality is grounded in something. And, and certainly in the West, our Western law, our Western morality has been grounded in biblical law and particularly the Ten Commandments. We used to understand this. There was a time when kids in school would learn the Ten Commandments. Uh, if you look at kind of the old church catechisms, we, we've kind of even lost this in the church, but there was, a, if you look at the old church catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism or Westminster Baptist Catechism, even Catholic catechisms, all, all church catechisms would have large portions given to the Ten Commandments. And now that's all kind of been lost. It's not something that we talk about very often. And the irony is, is that we are a culture, as Peterson says, that are obsessed with lists, right? We love lists. You're scrolling through social media and if somebody says, hey, here's five things to do this, you're clicking on it. You're like, I gotta know the five things, right? And you like it too, because they're usually bullet pointed and you only have to read like 25 total words to get the gist of the whole article. But in this culture that's obsessed with lists, I think we've kind of gotten over this list. And so I want to ask the question over the next you know, few weeks, does this, does this list, is it still valid for us? Does it still have anything to offer us? Is there, is there still wisdom or have the Ten Commandments kind of run their course in historical thought? Well, obviously, I'm going to give, you, give it away the answer here. I think that the Ten Commandments have a great deal to offer us. And there's, there's a couple of things that uh, we're going to be looking at as we look at these Ten Commandments or Ten Words. Uh, in fact, the, 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 actually, the, the better description of this is the Ten Words, uh, uh, the Dabar. God says, the, the Dabar I give. Moses says, the Dabar I give, these words I give to you, or the Decalogue, as the Ten Commandments is, is written in, in Greek, Deca, Ten, Logos, words, these Ten Words I give to you. And what we've tried to do in this series is actually boil this down to actual words um, that you can think about um, that will give you some framework. And so today we're going to be looking at the rule of authority. I'm calling it the rule of authority, this idea of authority that you need in your life. And as we go through this series, uh, as we look at each of these words, we're going to be kind of looking at it through the lens of three different big ideas. First of all, the practical wisdom that we can learn from these words or from these laws. Secondly, we're going to be looking at the character of God. Each of these things teach us a lot about actually the nature and the character of who God is. And then lastly, we're going to be looking at how these words, how these commandments help us understand our need for the gospel. So let's begin. The rule of authority. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's look at the practical wisdom here. Now, you may not know this about yourself, but you need authority in your life. You need some authority from which you begin to frame out your life, to frame out your activity, to frame out your, even your understanding of yourself and your understanding of how you relate to the rest of the world. Um, so here's a little example of this. When I was like in third or fourth grade, I would go to Grissom High School football games and there at Joe Davis Stadium there in Huntsville, Alabama, behind 
the bleachers, there was a little grassy area, and me and all my third and fourth grade buddies, okay, would play our own little game of the football game that was going on uh, among the 16, 17, 18-year-olds, right? And because we thought at that time, those guys have authority. That is football, right? What we're doing is we're trying to mirror what they're doing. In fact, I can still remember names like Darnell Macklin and Jay Morris who were early standouts at Grissom High School in the early 90s, right? Because, because even at that age, even at that young age, I needed authority. Now, obviously, there was a bigger, there was, there's greater football authorities than Grissom High School. But I really didn't know that at that time, right? In my mind, at that time, Jay Morris was like the greatest running back ever next to Bo Jackson. Um, that was how I was framing my life. We, we need some authority by which we frame our understanding of authority, our understanding of who we are, our understanding of our own life. This is the reason we like college degrees, right? Especially in this town. We, we like this. That's one of the first questions you ask, right? Where'd you go to college? Where'd you go to school? It's like, oh, you went to Vanderbilt. You must be smart, you know. Oh, you went to Princeton. Okay. You got the MBA from Wharton. You have authority. We like having, we like attaching our names to something that has authority so that we can believe I have some authority. I have some value. I have some worth. We, we need to be attached to some authority to understand that, okay, I actually have authority. I actually am doing something of value. I'm actually framing my life in a valuable way. You know, you're on this list. You know, my, my business was the top 50 in Atlanta for this. You know, I, uh, I, we're, I work for a Fortune 500 company. I had a write-up in the New York Times. You know, I have authority. There's something of authority that I am attached to. We have this need for authority. And so the question that I would ask for you, the question that I would ask to me, is, is what, what is authoritative in your life? Where are you framing your authority from? Where are you, what are you attached to? What has the most authority in your life? And, and I always say you can, you can learn a lot about what people are attaching themselves to, what actually has authority in a person's life by what you fear most and what you desire most, Right? What if it was taken away from you would be most devastating in your life? That will tell you a lot about how you're framing your own identity and what authority you're attaching your life to. And it may not be like a nationally known authority. It may be another person. It may be a relationship. It may be something small, but, but this is giving me identity. This is giving me authority. This is giving me meaning in life. What do you fear most? That if it was taken away from you, it would absolutely devastate you. It would cripple you, it would crush you. What, uh, what do you desire most? What, 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 do you, what is your goal that you really think, oh man, if I could have this, then... And one of the things I say is, is, you know a lot about what has authority in your life by whatever it is that soothes you the most. Whatever it is that soothes you the most. You ever have a time when you get hurt, like some, even small things, like somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? Or somebody is just rude to you. You ever have the time where somebody's just totally rude to you or cheats you? You know, Paige and I were getting these windows. And I'm not going to rat the guy out here in church, but I'm tempted to, you know? And we bought windows from this, he's this crook. I mean, he lied to us. He, it just, it was a bad deal. It was a bad deal. And I, and I just, I was hurt by it, you know? I was like, why did he treat me like this? And, you know, whenever you get treated like that, where you're hurt by something, you've been mistreated, you can learn a lot about your authority by like the next thought that enters your mind. 
You know, you can learn a lot your story is, is saying, you know, does he know who he's dealing with here? You know, does he know that I was top five in my company in sales last year? You know, if he knew that, does he know my Delta status? You know, if he, <laughs> if he knew that, he would have given me a better deal. You know, does, you know, does he know how pretty my wife is? Does he know how smart my husband is? What is that that comes to mind when you get hurt? Does he know how much money I have? Does he know how much authority I have? And whatever that is that's supplying you, that's soothing you in that moment, that'll teach you a lot about where you're finding your identity and where your heart really is. We are all seeking to find you know, our, our, our authority in something and we find our authority in the things that we perceive to actually have authority. We, we assign these things authority. And as long as we can be attached to these things that we have assigned authority to, then we'll be okay. Then we'll be something. Then we'll be successful. But here's the deal. There's a lot of things that we assign authority to that don't actually have that much authority, right? We're masters of assigning authority to things that, don't, that can't really carry the authority that we've assigned to them. Uh, you know, here's an example of this. A lot of times you'll see movie stars uh, like testify before Congress, right? And you're like, well, what does this guy have to do? Well, the reason is it's not that he or she, whoever's testifying has so much authority. It's just that people have assigned authority to them. They're such a good actor. They must know about education, right? You know, they must know about energy or whatever it is. And so they'll but I mean, I mean, even Elmo from Sesame Street has testified before Congress, right? Elmo has no moral authority, but, he, but people have assigned, as crazy as it seems, people have assigned Elmo authority. You know, leading up to this series, we, we did this little banner. This is uh, from Live Aid, and it's been made famous by the Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, Freddie Mercury at Live Aid. And, you know, just think about that moment, this billion people watching around the world, this huge stadium all this authority had been placed on him. And he was incredibly talented. And, and, and everybody was receiving this meaning from being there and being attached to him and being attached to the, the talent and the power that he was displaying in that moment. But, you know, if, if everything you read about Freddie Mercury, and this certainly comes out in the movie, is that this was a very lonely, very weak, very frightened man. And, and I think it was because he couldn't handle the weight of the authority that people were assigning to him. Nobody could. Nobody. I think that's why a lot of famous people, you, you read about famous people and they're, they're depressed and they're sad and they're lonely. Why is that? You're like, you have, you're rich. You're, people love you. What, what is this? They can't handle the weight of authority that people have put on them. People have assigned to them. They weren't made to handle that kind of authority. You know, there's this famous like rock story as long as we're talking about rock and roll of Jimi Hendrix and you know it's, it's kind of famous like rock legend I, th I think it's true I've heard it several times but his last concert was in Germany in 1970 September 1970 at some point you know as as people do in concerts somebody yelled out and kind of concert banter Jimmy you are the truth and Jimi Hendrix stopped in the concert and you know, a lot of times the guys ignore that but Jimmy Conrad said, no, I'm not the truth. I'm looking for the truth. Can anyone tell me the truth? And that was the last concert he ever played. He actually died of asphyxiation two weeks later. It's a very interesting story. And, and I just think, like, what, what was going on in his mind? And I think, as I'm saying, he couldn't handle the amount of authority 
that people were assigning to him. He knew he didn't have the authority that he was being assigned. And here's the deal. Unless you are assigning authority to something that actually has authority, you will either A, never be satisfied, or B, end up crushing, and B really, and B, you will end up crushing whatever it is that you are assigning authority to. If you are finding your authority in your work, you'll never be satisfied with work, right? You'll always need to be productive. You'll always need to be doing something. Or, or your work will always frustrate you because it's not appreciating you for all that you're giving to it. Because it, it, it was never designed to, to handle the weight of the authority that you're assigning it. You know, husbands, wives, if you are trying to find authority, meaning identity in your marriage, you men and you ladies will end up crushing one another. Your, your wife will never live up to your expectations. She'll never be good enough. She'll never be able to do everything that you need her to do. Your husbands will never do what they're supposed to do. You'll be frustrated with them all the time. They'll never get it right because they can't handle the authority that you're assigning to them. You know, don't you see? You're, you're in a relationship where you need them to be something because that is where my identity and my meaning is coming from because I've assigned them this authority and you're not free to just love them. Parents do this with children, right? I need my kids to be super successful. I need them to be more successful than I am. And so we push our kids and we, we drive them. We want them to be successful. We want to be a proud parent and, and we end up pushing them away because we, we, don't, we don't just actually love them. We're, we're, we're resting authority, our need for authority on them. If, if you are trying to find your authority in something that doesn't actually have authority, you'll never be satisfied and you'll end up crushing whatever it is that you have assigned authority to. Because you see, we assign authority to a lot of things that don't have authority. But I want to say this, and this is what this command is all about. There is one who actually has enough authority to handle the assignment. And now we're going to move kind of from the practical wisdom point to the character of God. And this is what God is saying here. He is saying, listen, Israel, I am the Lord, and I am actually the one that has enough authority to handle the kind of authority that you need to assign something or someone in order to find a satisfying identity. I have that kind of authority. You can assign all authority to me because I have all authority and I'm the only one that can handle the pressure, that can handle the weight of this assignment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, have no other gods before me. And, and God has this way in this passage of displaying both his power and his love. Let's look at his power. At this time, Egypt was everything. I mean, there was no people, there was no country, there was no force on earth that could compete with, that could stand up to the enormous authority that Egypt had. They had wealth, they had military power, they had might. In fact, the historians call Egypt the club of the empires. You know, even when you compare them to the Persians, the Babylonians, these other great empires, they were the club. They were the ones that really had the authority. They were the ones that really had wealth and dominion. This was the Egypt of the time of Moses. And no one and nothing had more authority than Pharaoh and his nation. And what does God do? He totally dismantles them. 
you know, this is something that is not explicitly stated in scripture, but, but people that were reading these passages when this was being written, uh, and certainly theologians have recognized, if you look at the plagues that, that were brought forth through Moses on Egypt, the 10 plagues perfectly correspond with the 10 leading gods in Egypt at the time. What is God doing in the plagues? He is showing Egypt, I am the Lord, I have all authority, not Egypt. So just for example, I'm not gonna go through all of them, but, but Hopi was the God of the Nile. What does God do? He destroys the Nile. He turns it into blood. Hecate was the goddess of fertility. You know what Hecate looked like? She had the head of a frog. You know what God does? He's like, oh, you like frogs. How about a few million of them? Same thing, Hather was the goddess of love and protection. She was going to protect the, the, the herds of Egypt. She was going to protect the people of Egypt. You know what that Hather looked like? She had the head of a cow. Same thing, all the livestock die. You see how God is undoing the, the things that reigned. Ra was the sun god. What do we see? The sun going dark for three whole days. God saying, I am the one who has authority here. Even Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh was divine. He was known as the great God of all these other gods. Pharaoh was like the God. And what do we see Pharaoh, his own son dying, his firstborn son dying, and he can do nothing to overturn this. He has no authority to bring his son back to life. Don't you see what God is doing? He is showing and he has shown this people, I'm the one who rules over Egypt. I'm the one where true authority lies. I am the one that is truly glorious. You know, the word that's used most often in the Old Testament for glory is kavod. I like that word. Let's say it together. Kavod. Let's say it one more time because y'all weren't ready. Kavod, right? I like that word. It's, it, the, the word means weight, density, right? Kavod. God is dense. God is weighty. He cannot be crushed. He will crush everything else. He has glory. He has kavod. God is showing his power in the undoing of Egypt, but he's also in this command showing his love. God is powerful, but God is also loving. He's also a savior. And God has this way of showing them both at the same time. Look at verse two again. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house, out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. I destroyed Egypt, but I saved you, Israel, because I love you, Israel. Which obviously pushes the question, why does God love Israel? Why does God love Israel? It's a good question. Does he love them because they were the most obedient people? No. <laughs> Just see Old Testament. Does he love them because they were concerned with the well-being of others? No, they weren't. Why does God love Israel? And the reason is, is because God made a covenant with Abraham <laughs> and with his offspring. Because God, God loves Israel because God loves Israel. And he entered into a relationship with him. And he said, you are going to be my people. You are going to be 
the object of my love, and I care about you, and I am saving you. And listen to this. This is instructive for us. This is instructive for you. It's instructive for me because this covenant of love, this covenant of salvation that was available, that God made available, that he had made with Israel, God now, through Christ, makes with all of us. With anyone who believes in Jesus, with anyone who looks to Jesus for life and salvation, as we celebrated last week, this covenant, this covenant of love that God had made with Israel before, now he makes with every tongue, with every tribe, with every nation. And it's not a covenant that's based on our obedience. Thank goodness. It's not a covenant that's based on our talent. It's not a covenant that's based on how good we are or what family we've come, we've come from. No, God is making a covenant with you and with me based on the perfect work, life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And through Christ, even though we're a long way from Egypt, even though we're a long way from Israel, through Christ, you and I, we can be the covenant people of God. This is what God is calling us into. Which brings us to the third point here, which is our gospel need. You know, you know your big need and my big need, our big problem, is that we, we aren't finding authority in God. We aren't assigning authority to God. We aren't resting our identity in God. We are finding, we are so busy about finding our authority in lesser things. You know what Israel was doing when Moses was on Sinai getting the Ten Commandments? As that was happening, do you know what the people of Israel, who had just seen God dismantle Egypt, who had just seen God destroy the Egyptian army and save them through the Red Sea, who had just seen God show himself to them in these amazing ways, you know what Israel is doing while Moses is up meeting with God getting the Ten Commandments? They are worshiping a golden calf the days after the Red Sea crossing. And you say, well, why? Why did they do that? You know why they did that? It's because that's what they saw the Egyptians doing. They were just doing what they saw the rest of the people doing. And here's the deal, guys. You and I, we do the same thing. We, we, we're here, we sing, my worth is not in what I own. We believe these things, and then we leave. And everybody around us is finding their identity in calves, <laughs> in lesser things. You know, I say around this area, here's what you find your identity in. You find your identity in productivity and in awesome experiences, right? You live in Atlanta, right? You better be productive. We're too busy to hate. We're working. We're getting after it. You better be closing a deal. You better be selling a company. You better be like getting offered another job, like those things better be happening to you or maybe you're not that valuable. Or if you're not doing that, you have to be doing something awesome. Like Orange Beach, that's not really Instagram worthy, right? I mean, it needs to be like an awesome experience and that's where value is found. That is where worth is found. No offense to Orange Beach. I love Orange Beach, by the way. <laughs> uh, we grew up going to... I was, you know, the pastor's kid. So Dr. Pullen, dentist, he, the distant dentist lets the pastor use the place. But we went to Dr. Pullen's beach house there, Gulf Shores, Alabama. Some of my greatest memories. But that doesn't fly here in Atlanta, right? You got to be productive or you got to be doing something awesome. And look, 
we leave here, and again, there's nothing wrong with productivity. There's nothing wrong with having a great experience. But there's no authority in that. There's no worth in that. You know, is that what your life is? <laughs> is, that what you, is, that what you, is that what you're gonna stand before God with? A couple of sold businesses and a couple of awesome experiences? Is there any worship in your life? Do you desire worship of God? What's more valuable than that? Is generosity true of your life? Where you're really, are, are you just spending all your money on yourself and on your awesome experiences? Or do you, are you really leveraging what God has given you for his glory, for the sake of his kingdom, to serve others? You know, are, are, you, are you really seeking God in prayer? Is, is there any sort of godliness and selflessness about you? Are, are you... Does God have authority in your life or are you dancing around a stupid calf? And I just want to say something. When I don't pray and when I don't read my Bible, even me, I'm a professional Christian, right? Even me, even as a pastor, this, even this, this can just become another job for me that I can be like, yeah, well, I'm doing this. I have a fast growing church. I do this, I do that, I do, you know, I'm awesome. And I can find my identity in the calf of ministry. If, I don't, if I'm not in tune with God, if, I don't, if I'm not every day praying, I'll find my identity in so many lesser things. But you see, but when I do pray and when I seek the Lord and when I align my heart with him, then I'm free to actually love people and serve people and see what God is doing. Then I'm free to actually love Paige without always needing something from her. And I can love my children and pursue the hearts of my children without needing them to be great so people think that I'm a great dad so I can find my identity in that small thing. And the same is true for you. That's why you need worship. That's why we need daily worship. That's why you need the Rhythms Booklet. We need to be aligning our heart with God in Christ. And when you do that, and when you remind yourself of the gospel, and when you're aligning your heart with God in Christ, you will live a life that pleases God. And here's the deal. It actually brings you joy. There's poise in it. There's peace in it. There's not so much anxiety in it. You'll actually be able to love God and to love other people. You'll be a better husband. You'll be a better wife. You won't be needing relationships to validate yourself because you're already validated. You're already resting in the one who has kavod. Are you resting in him? Are you attaching yourself to him? Is he where you're finding your identity? Is he what soothes you? Is his love what soothes you? And here's the good news, guys. As God said to Israel, what is God saying to Israel? Think about this. He is saying, I just crossed Egypt, but I love you. I love you. I love you. The one who has all authority is saying, I love you. And here's what God is saying to you. I love you. And he's demonstrated it to us even in a more dramatic way. God demonstrated his love to Israel in saving them out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt and overcoming the enemy of this great nation. But God has demonstrated his love for you in an even more magnificent way. God was so willing to send his son Jesus to get you out of the bondage of sin and death. We just sang this. You don't, you don't have to fear death in Christ. How much authority is that? What golden calf gives you that kind of authority? 
Yeah, you know, there's this guy. This is not in my notes, but it just came to my mind. I'm going to Israel in a couple of weeks. There's this guy named Ames. It's going with us. He's a member of Valleydale. And he found out this week that his cancer's back. And <laughs> he's probably going to die. And this guy is awesome. Like, I love this guy. It's just a servant. And so I call him up, you know, and I, part, I mean, I'll be honest. I probably called him a little bit out of duty. I didn't want to show up on the trip and see him and not have had called him. So there's my, like, confession. But anyway, I call him up, and I was like, Ames, I'm so sorry. And he's like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> he's like, I'm going, we're going to Israel in two weeks, Jason. And it's just, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's going to be fun. This guy really believes that he has conquered death in Christ. He doesn't have to be validated by lesser things. And um, do you believe that? Do you have that kind of poise? Do you believe that God has come to you and said, I am the Lord your God. I rule over Egypt. I rule over all things in this world, all things that can get you, all things that can discourage you, all things that can kill you, I rule over and I've brought you out. But then remember that he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And if you really want life and you really want joy, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would rest in that that we would rest in that, Lord. We would have no other gods before you, resting in a faith, in a belief that you actually love us, that you are the one that has all authority, and you love us, you saved us, and in Christ, you've conquered everything. Tune our hearts to that. Align our hearts with that. And I just want to ask you now, I'm just going to give you a few minutes, a moments of silence. What is it in your life that you have given authority to that is not God? What is before God in your life? What is before Christ in your life? Repent of that. Turn to Jesus. Rest in him. And Father, I thank you for the goodness of the gospel that even though we give ourselves to lesser things every day. We can always come back. You are a patient and caring Father. And the mercy and grace that you've shown us in Christ covers even our greatest sin. And I pray all this for your sake, Lord, for the sake of your glory and the sake of our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.